to the film room. Hello. Uh, today, we're going to talk about horror. Specifically, horror for the non-horror fan, which we both are. Yeah. This is this is kind of a strange cast, and I realize that a lot of people are going to be going, well, why are you doing this? The answer is simple. Horror is a major business, and we'd be kind of idiotic not to look at it. And also, another reason, which is that, okay, everybody always says, well, I hate X or Y kind of movie. But if you grill them long enough, you'll find out that, no, there's actually a few in that genre that they do like. So our goal for today is kind of to look at genre. And this is, I think, the best way to do it. To say, okay, it's not all-inclusive. I love superhero movies, but believe me, there are a few that I absolutely loathe with a passion. Just as I'm not a horror fan, but there are quite a few that I really like, and a few that are even among my favorite movies. Yeah, same. I don't hate horror so much. It's just, like, my least favorite genre. It's not the genre that I go looking for movies in. I think that's the point. And we're also doing this well before Halloween because it's fuck convention. Well, there, there's a couple of good reasons to do it well before Halloween. For one thing, right now there's a ton of good horror movies out, at least critically. And for another thing, and I think this is uh, the big one, we've got plans for October. Right, we've got much better plans for October. Yeah, which actually, to be fair, does include a horror film. True. Yeah, one of the films we're doing in October is absolutely a horror film. No question about that. And another big reason to do it is because there are more horror films in theaters right now than there will be in October. Yeah, which is very odd. Like, The Conjuring came out not too long ago. I know people who weren't big fans of it, actually. Yeah. They're the only ones. Yeah, I think you've mentioned... You know, right now you've got your next in theaters, which, oh my god, I hope you get a chance to catch Brad Jones' review of it, because he hated it. Oh boy, yeah, he he reviewed that with The World's End, didn't he? Uh, someone else went to see The World's End uh, on his site, and they loved it, apparently, but, which I skipped the review of. Oh, I imagine they would. Yeah. I mean, you've just got a healthy amount of films in theaters that do have horror themes, but you, you're going to have one major studio horror release in October. That's it. Hmm. That is it. So That's weird. Yeah. I guess it kind of would make sense, because if studios put all their horror eggs in one basket, then there'd be too much competition, and um, it would suck for all. But yeah, we're, we're, we're down to just one horror film in October, so uh, yeah, without further ado, let's, let's get into, I think the best place to start is, why don't we like horror? And I'll let you go first. Well... You, like, triggered this discussion. 
Yeah, as a kid, going to the video store as a kid was one of my favorite things ever. Like, every Friday night. Me too. The only thing is, there's one aisle that I was too afraid to go down, and that's the horror aisle. Which, unfortunately, is located, like, almost right next to the kids' aisle. Why did video stores do that? I don't know. It's like they wanted to traumatize us. It's really weird. It's the same thing happened to me, believe me. Yeah, but, yeah, the, just because the covers of horror movies are just scary. Because, you know, that's what they're trying to do. That's what the pull is. Now I can just go through and laugh at it. Growing up, I cut glimpses of horror movies and was just creeped out and just did not really want anything to do with the genre. You know, li links between your tastes kind of ultimately uh, lead to select horror movies. So, uh, of course, there are some that I like and own. So, I mean, it's it's one of those things, you know, you can't avoid. You can't avoid the genre. There's some there's some good stuff there. My story's pretty much the same as yours. You know, growing up, I, you know, you stayed away from that section in the video store. Uh, of course, as an adult, you're able to see that, okay, these movies, the covers were usually the only good thing about them. I was not a big fan of the uh, big two of the slashers. I'll tell you, one of the most formative experiences for me was ironically about a film that now bears the Walt Disney Pictures logo. When I was nine, there was a photo spread in Disney Adventures for The Nightmare Before Christmas that was in 3D, and it scared the hell out of me, I'm going to admit. I actually did not wind up seeing that film until I was 22. Uh, admittedly, that was mostly because of a set of weird circumstances, I mean, I just never really got around to seeing it, so... It wasn't necessarily that, oh, I cared that would be too adulthood, but that was a movie that, as a kid, seriously creeped me out. And so I stayed away from it. I didn't see it. Until again, until I turned 22, and ironically, it was the 3D re-release of the film that made me go see it. And I would wind up going to see it for three straight years. Damn it, that one really is one of my favorite movies. So, you know, but yeah, I, I, I just, I wasn't a fan. And then when I got old enough to overcome my anxiety about the genre, I came to realize that I just didn't like it because it was kind of sadistic. Yeah, on the whole, you, know, you talked about the slasher movies. That's kind of the the one area of horror that I just, I won't, I just won't. Yeah, I, I'm going to say right now, for those who are wondering, we're not going to talk about uh, very many slasher films on this cast. I noticed when we were laying out the films that we were going to talk about, they're all supernatural horror. Yeah, I mean, most of them. Yeah, supernatural, and some... That, you know, in talking to people, I guess uh, some people don't really consider horror. Like, we'll, we'll get to that, but... There's a very specific example that we want to take on here. But the film... I, uh... But, I mean, I, I don't like the sadism of it. I'm not a fan of the Scream films. Of course, I'm not a fan of the Scream films also because they don't take the genre seriously enough. It's like, if you're gonna be a movie, be a movie and be it proudly. I see a lot of rants against that, and I'm with people. I'm not a fan of postmodern horror. Don't laugh at what you are. Be what you are. I, I can't stand that. Because I can't stand postmodernism, period. But, I mean, I, I guess it's kind of instructive to talk about, you know, with the slasher movies. I, I don't like Freddy. I don't like Jason. I, here's the thing. I like the character of Freddy Krueger, and I like the idea of him. It's a really good idea. And it's probably that's probably a movie I will wind up seeing at some point. There's a few of those that I should note that I'm not the biggest 
fan of the series, mainly because they quickly got to the point where... Yeah, to the point where it's just silly. Like, I've seen a clip from, uh, oh, one of the later ones where he, like, sucks one of the teenagers into a video game. Bam! Wow! Oh, shit! That's it! Get out of here now, please! Now. Hey! You forgot the power gloves! Yeah, it's silly. And they take away the raw horror of the character, who, let's not forget, in his original form, was a child molester slash murderer. Yeah. And by the later films, they make him practically the hero. Really? Almost. Almost. Like, it's not that so much that he's the hero, so much as it's that they make the teenagers so unlikable that you're clearly not supposed to really root for them. I see. He's the good guy that's kind of wiping out all these nasty teenagers. Uh, you know, that's really where the series got to. Um, you know, at least with Jason, he has the fact that he does kind of have a sympathetic backstory. Enough so that they were able to kind of transition him into a hero role in Freddy vs. Jason. Which I should know is actually not that bad. Really? No, it's, it's not. It's, it, for what it is, it's, you know, it's nothing that I'm a big fan of. But at the very least, I'll say that it at least did what it set out to do. I'm always a fan of crossovers. Uh, I do like the concept of the fact that they actually combine these two properties together. But in general, with those characters, I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of Michael Myers. I'm not a slasher fan. Here's the thing. I like gore when it's done cartoonish and over the top. Usually with those movies, it's kind of not. Right. They kind of wallow in the gore. I do like monster movies. I I love me some monster movies. I think that's why I was a huge X-Files fan. Monster of the Week. I was a gigantic X-Files fan. Still am, actually. I remember watching it casually because it was on after The Simpsons. Man, it's on Netflix. It's worth it. Put it on. It's The character work is really good. The acting is great. You'll see a lot of actors that you'll come to recognize later. I liked that the uh, replacement halfway through for... Uh... David Duchovny was the T-1000. Yeah, Robert Patrick was awesome on that show. I, He got a lot of crap. He was very funny, very human, and very likable. I enjoyed him on it, because he, he brought a different tone to the shows. Look, I, I, I think his run on the show gets a bad rap because he wasn't Duchovny, but I liked that he wasn't Duchovny. He wasn't a stand-in. Yeah, he was his own character. Yeah. Uh, we should talk about the entire reason that... I even have enough knowledge about horror films to spike this discussion, because if everything had gone as it was usually going, I wouldn't have uh, been discussing horror. Up until a few years ago, I only saw one horror film in theaters a year, generally. So what happened to change that? You started dating a horror fan. I started dating a hardcore horror fan. <laughs> Amanda, uh, this, this cast is very much dedicated to you, my sweet. Um, Hi, Amanda. Hi, um, yeah, uh, um, my fiance is a gigantic horror fan. She loves the genre. I found it telling that when we were discussing about the most disturbing film that she'd ever seen, her choice was Ichi the Killer, which, hmm. if you're not familiar with it, I've never seen it, but it's, it's, yeah, it's, 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 a. Uh, she knows what she's talking about, is my point. Yeah. Amanda's a huge horror fan, and several of the films that we're discussing on this cast our films that she talked me into seeing. Here's how much of a horror fan Amanda is. For Valentine's Day, our first year together, the big movie for people on Valentine's Day was The Vow. 
That's what everybody was going to see on Valentine's Day. Amanda and I went to see The Woman in Black, starring Daniel Radcliffe. Damn it, I still have yet to see that movie. I really want to. Yeah, I wish you'd been able to, because that's one that echoes what I want what we're gonna talk about when we talk about good horror. It's it's very good. It's scary as hell. It's it's good if you like gothic stories in the true sense of gothic. So yeah, Amanda's been a big influence for me. That's actually a very sweet Valentine's Day story. Yes, yes, yes it is, I think so. And we had a great time. We had a great time. But of course, before Amanda, there was one horror film that pretty much everybody wants to go see. So let's turn the way back dials back to 1999 <laughs> for really the first horror movie that I love. And I know it's one that you saw. The Sixth Sense. I want everybody just for a moment to forget that they have any rancor towards Shyamalan now and just wipe their minds of it. Forget the name. The name will come up in a few weeks. Trust me, we'll get there. But you know, t- take the name out for a second and just focus on the movie. Oh my god, what a movie. It still holds up. It, it does, it does. I went to see that movie because I'd seen The Mummy and I'd seen The Haunting and I figured, okay, I'm ready to go see another horror film. First of all, those two films are not really horror films. They're special effects, fiestas, and they're not very good. That cannot be said for The Sixth Sense, which is A, very, very, very good, and B, scary as all hell. Yeah, Jesus. I watched it again for cast prep. Sort of on a whim. Like, it was late at night. It was like one in the morning. It's like, okay, I'll just I'll just watch this film real quick and go to bed. At the end, it's like, I do not want to go to bed. <laughs> I believe it. It is very much in uh, his style, in uh, Shyamalan's style. It is. And I can see how he launched a career from it. And I'd like to point out to people, Shyamalan made three really damn good movies right in that period. And I feel like The Village is one bad ending away from being a fourth. Yeah. I mean, that ending is so bad that it completely takes the film off the rails and it can't recover. Funny thing about The Village, I actually saw it twice in theater and did not remember seeing it the second time. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, I believe it. But I just want to remind people, Shyamalan was a really great filmmaker at the beginning of his career. Because after The Sixth Sense, you had Unbreakable and Science, and I think Unbreakable is not a horror film, so it's not really applicable, but Science is another movie. Science has got some scares that are up there. Unbreakable is a uh, superhero movie. It's a superhero origin movie. It's the first act. It's probably the best postmodern superhero movie that we've had yet. I think it's better than Kick-Ass, I think it's better than Super, I think it's better than all of them. Watchmen doesn't count, it's based on iconography novels, so, you know. Uh, but, you know, getting back to The Sixth Sense, I think people forget how just how damn scary that motion picture is. Oh, yeah. It's one of those that, um, like, even today, like, I don't, I don't necessarily believe in ghosts. I take the attitude that I don't know that I do or I don't. Right. I know that I think life's more awesome if I'm open to the concept, I think, of my stance. Right. And I, I would agree with that, yes. But at the same time, like, even today when I see, like, uh, like you know, on YouTube there are a lot of, oh my god, I saw ghost videos. Like, e- yeah. Even though I know that, oh, like, 90% of those, at least 90% of those are obviously fake, it still creeps me the fuck out. Yeah. I mean, it, it, 
just like, ah. <laughs> most of the horror movies that I like are ghost stories, I've noticed. Yeah. I think most of that is due to having seen The Sixth Sense. I think so, too. I think I think that that movie did leave a pretty deep scar on all of us. Yeah. The part where he's at the party, and he, uh, he sees mm-hmm. the red balloon. And uh, really good imagery with the color red, by the way. A really good symbolism. Yeah. Every time you see the color red in that film, it's something that has been tainted by ghosts. He does not use it lightly. Like, there are some things that are colored red that you don't really know the backstory on. But I'm sure... You know, it's it's part of the world. Yeah. Like, it's like, oh, that has been tainted by a ghost somehow. Like, we don't know what, because it's not part of our story. But it kind of makes it a richer, a richer world. We only really get answers to what happened to two of the ghosts. Yeah, yeah. And let's face it, spoilers are off, okay? You all know the ending at this point. You all know that one of the ghosts is the main character of the film. You know, we're, we're not going to throw up a warning. I think that's the only mention I want to give of the ending, because I feel like this movie has been overshadowed by the ending. Yeah, it really has. Because in the end, even even when you know the twist, then it's it does not affect enjoyment of it. Like, it gives you greater understanding of what's going on, but it does not affect the enjoyment of it. In fact, it might even enhance it. It, it does, it does. Um... But getting back to that scene in the party, what's so amazing about that scene is you don't see anything. All you do is hear. And what you hear is terrifying. There's someone out there. Open this door, please. Come on. I can't breathe. Is there something you want to see in there? No. We're going to put on a pretend play. It's called Locked in the Dungeon. seeing it for the first time, you don't know uh, if what this kid is going through is real or not. I think he's already mentioned at this point in the movie that... Uh, no, he hasn't yet. He hasn't mentioned it no, yet, because no, it's the no. scene after that that he, that he tells Bruce Willis. But you know he's like been scared of something, but you just you don't know what. And seeing that, it's like, ah. Oh, that's incredible. And of course, at that moment, then suddenly the film just absolutely turns everything up. And we're bombarded with this horrific imagery. Hey, come on. I'll show you where my dad keeps his gun. Come on. You know, and you see all of these people walking around looking like they looked when they died. The kid who's blown the back of his head off. The uh, woman who slashed her wrists. Probably the hardest scare that I've had in a theater in... I mean, it may still be the hardest, is the vomiting ghost. <laughs> and that's a scene that somehow manages to be scary even though it's kind of been tainted over the years by allegations that the actress, when she got older, might have suffered from anorexia and bulimia. Uh, really? Ew. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she was on the OC. 
Oh, great. Yeah. I hate to bring that up, but it kind of almost has to come up. Uh, in that, the, but the scene's still scary. The scene's just terrifying. It's still terrifying, even once you realize what's going on with that character. Yeah. And you realize that she's not, you know, that this is an innocent little girl. And, in fact, the scene where he goes back to confront her is really powerful. Because it's very humanizing. It's funny because, like, when he goes to the funeral and he goes up to a little girl's room and he knows he's looking for something, you know, she she is there and under the bed, and she still terrifies him. Yeah, good, good. That's a great jump scare. <laughs> and uh, you know, I'm, I'm no fan of jump scares, but when it's properly set up, jump scares can work really well. They are. They are. I'm, I'm not a big fan of jump scares either because they're usually really cheap. Yeah, they're usually a gimmick. And they're not cheap in this movie. You'll notice that Shyamalan doesn't throw in a loud, clattering noise that's just, oh, cat got into the pans. Yeah, usually it's the score that does it. Yeah, well, I mean, it was, uh, let's see, James Newton Howard did the score, and he did a phenomenal job on it. It's a movie that is held up. The color palette is amazing on the film. It has a very muted, cold feeling. Uh, you can tell that that's the weather. If that makes any sense, you can tell the film still works for me, and I see no reason that it's not going to continue to work for me. The film was nominated for multiple Oscars, didn't win any, total shutout. But you know, as time goes by, I still feel like it's. I've seen a lot of other films from the class of 1999 since Magnolia, being John Malkovich, Three Kings, The Matrix, yes, The Matrix. But and I still really believe that The Sixth Sense belongs in that class of films. It deserved its Best Picture nomination. But if we're on the sixth sense, I do want to talk about another movie. Uh, have you seen Star of Echoes, which came out about the same time? I have not. People who like the sixth sense, I really recommend they get a chance to check out this one because it's another ghost story, and it's another really great ghost story. Kevin Bacon stars in it, plays a man who undergoes hypnosis, and it winds up triggering an ability for him to see the dead, a specific dead person, and... It's really good. It's 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 very intense. Based on a Richard Matheson novel, um, I'm a big fan of Matheson. Uh, it's not all that faithful, but it's given how Hollywood's done some of his other works, it's more faithful than some. So yeah, uh, Star of Echoes is good. I, I recommend people get the chance to if you get the chance to see it. I recommend it. Uh, it came out a couple of weeks after The Sixth Sense. Kind of got lost in the shuffle. But it's a really... You watch that in Sixth Sense, you've got a really great uh, double feature there. I'll have to see that. Where do we go from here? Oh, let's talk about The Exorcist. Yes, let's talk about The Exorcist. Yes, on this podcast where we're recommending films uh, for people who are not big horror fans, we're going to talk about The Exorcist. Wow, this is... Uh... It's a very 70s movie. Yeah. Which is a good thing. I like 70s movies. It's a 70s movie in the sense that it's a 70s style film. Yeah. It's very much that new wave, uh, the um, getting away from the old way of making films. It's a very stark film. It's a very bleak motion picture. I should stress that I don't feel like it's dated. No. In the least. I actually saw it in a theater uh, a couple years ago. Oh. And again... That, that connects back to Miss Amanda. Very nice. Yeah, and I, I'm glad. I'm glad because I, I thought it was 
it is what it is. I don't know really what more to say about it. Netflix took it off, unfortunately. I was urged to see it by my friend Ian. Hi, Ian, who is also a big horror fan. I was I was flipping through my DVR. It's like, how am I going to see this film? And then I, at the bottom was The Exorcist. It's like, oh, I forgot I had this. And luckily it was taped off IFC, which does not edit their films. Which is good, because an edited version of this film is going to suffer dramatically. Yeah. By the way, IFC, good channel. So I kind of I kind of went in knowing like the tropes of it, the really famous lines. We've got a guest. You're gonna die up there. And your mother sucks cocks in hell, Terrence. The power of Christ compels you. The power of Christ compels you. Uh, you know the head spinning, the puking. And I was the same way. I mean, when those happen in the film, they're they're presented in such a way that you don't go, "Oh, there it is." Yeah. But you go, wow, that was a sh- that was a surprise. Ugh. The scene where the mother gets yanked backwards. Mm, yeah. Yeah. That, that catches you off guard. Yeah. And of course, the... Eh, like, the more really gross part, like, the part with the crucifix. Let's just call it the crucifix scene. The crucifix because... scene, yes. I knew that was coming, but I'm just... I um Like, I didn't know in what form, and I was kind of dreading it. And I was right to dread it, but it was it was not what I expected at all. Like, I expected it to be horrific, but I just didn't expect it to be that horrific. It's because of that scene that I'm not sure that the film could get an R rating today. No. Keep in mind, this is a 12-year-old girl. Yeah. It's supposed to be... I don't know how old the actress was at the time, but it's supposed to be a 12-year-old girl. They used a lot of body doubles. They used a lot of body doubles on the film. So there, there, there's some there's some elements to it that are not quite what they seem, mind you. But still, the fact that it's a character of that age doing what she's doing and saying what she's saying. Now, I know that the movie did go before the ratings board in 2000 for a re-release, and it still kept its R rating, but I feel like that was mainly because it was like, well, there's nothing we can do about it now. Right. Like, if we if we give this film uh, a rating which forces them to cut uh, any scene, then there will be a shitstorm. Yeah. Don't want to mess with that, so... Okay. It's grandfathered in, but I don't know that... I don't know that it should have been. I think that's kind of the best way that I can put it. The MPA is a whole separate cast, by the way. Yeah, but as I said, it's horrific. It is. It's very horrific. I don't know. I hesitate to say spoilers are off for this one, but... Yeah, in a weird way, I kind of feel like... Because even though it's such a staple of pop culture, I don't know that you really completely want to take that off for this one. Yeah. Yeah, so we're not we're gonna gonna give away like details or the ending, because uh, it is something you really do have to experience in all its glory. And I know there are people that haven't seen it, like me, and I'm I'm glad I went in partially blind. We're not gonna talk spoilers, like too in depth for this one. But I feel like this is a movie that was, that's been overspoiled in culture anyway. Yeah, yeah, it has. I uh, like the scenes we mentioned. Yeah, the the but the whole thing where the priest is going through like the young priest. And just trying to determine whether this is a legitimate possession or not. You know, it's one of those things where you look at what he sees and what it's like. What? Look at her face. It's all uh, like, how can this not be a possession? <laughs> Open your eyes, man. Like he does come around, but yeah, it's it's kind of it's interesting the process that they go through for that. That's something I think that's I hesitate to say it's unique to seventies films, but 
is it is a very slow film. It builds. I mean, I love the fact that it builds because it's when it gets there, it's all the more satisfying. But well, you're right. There's no one moment where the film just suddenly, like with the Sixth Sense, and I'm again, I think that's something that works well in that film. There's no one moment where it's like click. Everything is bad and everything is wrong, and all hell has broken loose. It's a descent into hell. Oh, yeah, li almost literally. Yeah, almost literally, but it, it's gradual. Just one thing adds on to another, adds on to another, until you look around and you realize that everything has gone completely awry. That ending, man, like with, with the actual exorcism, is really powerful just all the way through. It has you on the edge of your seat. Yeah, because you just want to see what's going to happen. And what's interesting about that scene is if you look at how it's shot, it's very matter-of-fact. It's very ordinary. Yeah, it's not that stylized. It's just an ordinary bedroom, and it's ordinary lighting. I think it's safe to say that you're kind of in the eyes of the young priest. Like, it's all, it's new, and it's, uh, like, it's like, oh, God, this is really happening. This is happening. Oh, my God. <laughs> kind of thing. And also, what is happening? Yeah, and there's never really a satisfactory answer that's given. No. No, not really. We have ideas, and we know that's... I mean, we know beyond any doubt that something has happened. But the film's very open to interpretation. I know that the sequels do not give us that freedom. No, I, I have no interest in seeing the sequels. I've actually heard that the third one is pretty good. I mean, Cara did a review of the third one that was really made it look appealing. The second one, of course, is one of the all-time worst films by pretty much every standard that I've ever heard. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to see it. I would like to see the third one. Uh, the sad part about the third one is apparently there's there was a director's cut before they had to go in and mangle it to all hell by the studio, and that cut no longer exists. Like, hmm. it's completely destroyed. The footage does not exist. Uh, they've even gone looking for the footage. It's gone. So, yeah. That sucks. It does suck. Uh, especially because, again, by all accounts, the third one was thought to be pretty good. You talk about the priest. It's worth noting, I think that was Jason Miller who played that part. I think that was one of his first film roles. He was a stage actor and a playwright, actually. He did not do much on screen for that, and was because he's a face that we don't recognize, it makes it all that much easier to take his character seriously. Yeah. He's really good. His stories would be gripping without the exorcism. Oh, God, yeah. And I think that's kind of a running theme talking about stories that even without the main plot twist the character like the story of the characters is interesting i think that is the mark of a really good film yeah if you take away big thing little thing is still interesting and in this case you've got the fact that like okay the priest his mother is dying and we can tell that his faith is not particularly strong it's never like made explicit and yelled out at us really not in until later in the film does it become completely clear. But we can tell that he's a man who's very much going through the motions, and that for him this is a job. We see his relationship with his mother, and it's really poignant. You have the nice subtext of him, you know, just like the, the scenes of him boxing. Kind of an interesting touch. You have the mother who's working as, a, uh, as an actress. She's a movie star. And I kind of love that that's, that that's a job that this woman has, in a film that's not about Hollywood at all. Right. This film couldn't be less about Hollywood. 
No, but it's kind of there at an angle that the mother's an actress and that she seems to be fairly successful at it. Uh, the mother's played by uh, Ellen Ellen Burstyn, who's done just uh, countless work. She's she's really very solid here. She really grounds the film. You've got the cop who is such an awesome creation because he's such a an upbeat presence in the midst of all of this horror that's going on. You've got this cop who's just kind of walking around and cracking jokes, and it's a, it's a nice subplot running through the film. I do kind of wonder, trying to phrase this in a way that doesn't spoil the end, but he does he does investigate some of the atrocities committed, and uh, you know he's also there at the end. It's one of those things, you know, why I I wonder why he hasn't arrested this little girl. There's some subtext there to be explored, like. You know, does he, like, I'm sure he knows about the exorcism, like, does he believe it? If so, if he does believe it, then how, you know, how would he write that up to where um, it makes sense in a police report? Well, I think that's the whole thread of the film, is how do you make sense of this stuff in the present day? Right, because they mentioned, you know, that's no more poignant in the scene where the, the mother is talking to the priest about exorcism. There are no experts. It's fascinating. This is a movie where superstition runs headlong into reality, and the film really does deal with, you know, the complicated relationship that those two things would have. And it's so well explored. It should be noted, I know that William Peter Blatty, the writer of the uh, book that the movie is based on, the producer of the film, and the screenwriter, uh, it should be noted, he won an Oscar for this script. Oh, good. This is rare Oscar-winning horror, and he completely deserved it, too. I mean, I, this is an incredible script. He, I, I know that he is a man of faith, and I, and I can see that. But I can also see a man who's honest enough to really study that relate, how that is complicated in this era of science. It's a very subtle thing that the family is not religious. Oh, yeah, that's true. They undergo all this scientific testing on her and just find nothing. Nothing. The scene where she's being tested... That needle, oh, it, it hurts. It does. It's a painful scene to watch, but it's so well worth it because, again, that's another shot. It's not done in some heavy stylized angles. It's just a medical shot, you know? Uh, William Friedkin, who directed it, and is still at it to this day. I haven't seen his more recent stuff, but I know it's known to be uh, first rate. He really shoots it in an interesting way. Uh, he shoots it, you know, just very matter-of-factly. I, mean, I mentioned that earlier, but it's matter-of-fact all the way. And I love that. I gotta ask, did you have the sequence with the crab walk in the movie? The crab walk? Um, the scene where she's on the stairs crawling backwards. I don't remember. Is that is that a director's cut thing? Yes. Um, well, it's a producer's cut. It's producer's cut. I didn't see that cut. I think I saw okay. the original cut. Well, actually, I've heard the original cut was better, but the uh, producer's cut is what I saw. So uh, I see. No, I didn't see that. In fact, there was a there's a corrupted bit in my DVR copy. I I missed like a whole minute. Actually, like two minutes were cut out, but it was during the medical scene. It was just about to get to the end of the scene where she's being pricked by all the needles and they're examining her brain. And it just froze, and then it skipped over the damaged area to two minutes later. When she's she's shaking, it's like, ah, what's wrong with me? It's like, ah, I'm missing a whole chunk here. So I actually went on YouTube yeah. to fill in the blank for at least the end of the medical scene. 
It's like, okay, they found nothing. I think that's the point of information here that I needed. Yeah, and that is. But I think I also might have missed the priest's mother dying. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think I did miss that because that's uh, an important point and something he mentions later. It's like, oh, when did that happen? Oh, it must have been within that two minutes. Damn it. I think so. So I'm going to have to actually seek out a physical copy of this film and rewatch it. It's just, again, it's worth seeing every moment that you can. Uh, mm-hmm. One thing I want to talk about is uh, a nice subtle thing. Uh, Father Marin is played by Max von Sydow in the film. In the movie, he's playing a man about 30 years older than he was at the time of the film. Uh, he was only about 47 when the film was shot, I think. And he's playing a man who's supposed to be in his late 70s. So they used age makeup to make him look older. You wouldn't notice it, would you? No, because it looks like he does now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, of course, now at this point, he's older than he was then. And he looks like that. This is some of the best age makeup I've ever seen because it's very subtle. I have seen some really, really god-awful age makeup in films that were asking me to take it seriously. Prometheus! Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, okay, the, the age makeup that they used on Guy Pearce in that film is absolutely pathetic. They have, got, they have age makeup on Guy Pearce in that film for reasons that relate to scenes that were cut before they even shot the movie. Right. But yeah, I mean, it's just, come on. It, it, the age makeup here is subtle, it's well done, and it just, it works. The Exorcist, I will say that I feel like some of the, a lot of the scare moments have been muted because of the fact that it's such a cultural artifact, you know? Yeah, unfortunately. But watch the movie because it's a really great motion picture. You know, that's just that's just some of the the scares, though. I mean, there there are a lot more to be had. The overall tone of it. The movie needs to be seen just because it's well acted, it's well written, it's well directed, and it's just a great film. It's a movie you'll think about for a long time afterwards. I should note, I watched this before work one day. Like right before work, I had like a three-hour window, so I'm like, I think I'll watch The Exorcist. I should not have watched this before work. <laughs> No, it's not no, a thing you no. have to watch before you have to do anything serious because it will be on your mind. While we're on the topic of Oscar-winning horror, we we hinted earlier at a film that is in the debate realm, so I just want to say it right now: Silence of the Lambs is a horror movie. Next. <laughs> quote-unquote big five Oscars for screenplay, director, actor, actress, and picture. It's a horror movie. It's a great film. I'm, I'm not going to deny that. It, it's, it's really an amazing piece of cinema. It's a horror movie, period. I hear people refer to it as a psychological thriller and such, or a suspense film. Okay, that's fine. You're still talking about horror. It's a movie about a serial killer who plays women's skin and of course, a cannibal as a major character. Yeah, part of Hannibal's character is that he didn't eat anybody that didn't deserve it. Am I right on that? I I don't recall, but he would certainly justify it as such. Yeah, I mean that maybe that was a thing in one of the later movies or the prequel. I don't know. Okay. Uh, well, you, you know, you got Manhunter from uh, director Michael Mann with uh, with Brian Cox, an excellent actor in his own right as uh, Lecter. And then you do have Red Dragon um, in uh, 2002. I've seen Red Dragon, and um, it's pretty good. 
I need to. It's good. It's it's good. It's not great. It's not on the same tier as uh, Silence of the Lambs. We talked again about actors who are just too pretty for the parts that they're playing. Rafe finds as uh, the serial killer in Red Dragon is just he's wrong. <laughs> he is wrong for the part that he's playing. Finds is just he's playing a character who is supposed to be somewhat ugly and disfigured. Finds is he's wrong for his part. And so yeah. But Red Dragon's pretty good. Uh, it's got a good cast uh, across the board. It's well shot. It feels of a piece. It's pretty good. I, at least I enjoy it, is the best way of putting it. I don't think I'm ever going to watch Hannibal, Hannibal Lecter's standalone movie. No, I've heard it's terrible. Yeah, I mean, I just have no interest. I'm not a big Ridley Scott fan anyway. Oh, he did that? He did Hannibal, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, given what I just said about Prometheus, I don't think anybody's shocked that I'm not a big Ridley Scott fan. I like movies he's done. I like some of the stuff that he's done, uh, but I'm not a fan of Prometheus, I'm not a fan of Gladiator. Um, but yeah, so I think that's that's kind of the best way of addressing that is, yeah. And uh, I didn't see Hannibal Rising, I've heard some, some people like it, some people don't. I just don't need a prequel. I don't need an explanation for how the character became the character. And there's a TV series now that I hear is actually pretty good. Yeah, I hear a TV series is excellent. It stars the villain from uh, the 2006 Casino Royale, which is a creepy fucker. So that's good casting. Yeah, he, yeah, I, he, he, that's an excellent choice there. And uh, it's got a good cast all around. Uh, I haven't seen it. I've heard it's, I've heard it's good. I need to... Need to catch it because I've heard it's really something to see, and I've, I've heard that it has a very dark perspective too. Oh yeah, which is good. Um, while we're talking about horror on TV, um, we have to at least briefly acknowledge that. Yeah, I mentioned the X Files. I'm also a gigantic Twilight Zone fan. Haha. <laughs> yes. Uh, speaking of Richard Matheson. Yes. Yes. Matheson's domain. Um. Nightmare at 20,000 Feet is one of my all-time favorite short stories slash TV series episodes. I mean, I just, I love it. And people who think that William Shatner can't act really need to watch that episode. You remember what I told you before about seeing something outside? There's a man out there. I, I, I don't mean a man, I mean a... What do they call him during the war? Gremlins. You remember the stories in the... Julia, don't look at me like that. Bob. I am not imagining it. When, when Shatner set his mind to it, he could be an amazing actor. And that was an episode where he proved it. Uh, he's, he, he really grounds it. It's, it's, I don't know, it's hard to describe it. But yeah. So I love the Twilight Zone. I'm a big Twilight Zone fan. Uh, I think the episode that really creeps me out the most on that is an earlier one. It's the one with the kid. You know which one I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, yes, it's a good life. What are you doing, Anthony? Why, that's real good, whatever it is. I made a gopher with three heads. See him? Yeah. Yeah, my, my, he's a real fine one. I ain't never seen a gopher with three heads before. I'll make him dead now. I'm tired of playing with him. Be dead. Gopher, you be dead. My, my that's real fine that you've done that. That it's so simple. Like it is so simple. It is. 
Alright, one of the ones that's without the famous uh, uh, Twilight Zone twist, I should say, like at least at the end. It doesn't really have it. It's no. more that this situation is so horrific that it can't. Yeah, exactly. You know, the Simpsons episode that references it is also one of my favorites. Well, class, the history of our country has been changed again to correspond with Bart's answers on yesterday's test. America was now discovered in 1942 by some guy, and our country isn't called America anymore. It's Bonerland. (laughs) Which is hilarious, and you can tell that the people that made that episode really loved that episode of Twilight Zone. Oh, yeah. Like, I can't think of another situation in any of the episodes that they did. Because they did a lot of episodes that riffed on the Twilight Zone. I think uh, uh, most of their Halloween episodes actually at least have one Twilight Zone uh, riff. They do. They do. They tend to. They did a Nightmare at 20,000 parody. <laughs> uh, Otto, you gotta do something! There's a gremlin on the side of the bus! Eh, no problemo, Bart, dude. I'll get rid of it. <laughs> no! Oh, no, I just made my last payment. But the the riff that they did on It's a Good Life was just so spot on and, like, laden with tiny details from that episode that, yeah, they they got that one right. They really did. That episode is, like, it's it's still the most horrific things I've seen on TV. But yeah, I mean, I'm a big Twilight Zone fan. I'm curious to see. There's talk now of trying to do it as a movie. There have been a couple. Like, I, I actually did like the uh, 80s Twilight Zone movie. Well, they got that one right. They did try to, they got in four uh, top-notch directors to do it. Landis, Dante, Spielberg, and uh, George Miller. And I think there is actually... And it's a good life section on that. It's not very faithful. That was Joe Dante's section. Yeah. Uh, it's not all that faithful, but it does try. It, it does it, it does its own thing while riffing on it. You know, talking about uh, Joe Dante, I'd be remiss if we didn't bring up Gremlins. Oh, yes. While we're doing this cast... Let's please bring up. We've got to talk about Gremlins. I actually got. I got to see that one in the theater as well. And okay, once again, Gremlins is another one that I tend to see people kind of off and on about. Do they include it as horror? Of course, it's horror. Of course, it's also a comedy, and it's also pretty silly. But it's meant to be, and it's still pretty horrific. When things go bad, they go so bad and so classically. Gremlins is just one of the great monster movies of the 80s. Like, when I talk about loving monster movies, Gremlins is an example of one that I really love. Because it just... It, the creature design is so great. And the stop motion is wonderful. It's a lot of stop motion and animatronics. Yeah, stop motion, puppetry, animatronics. It, they do a really good job with it. And they look real. I will never hear the song, Do You Hear What I Hear? And not be creeped out. On the hatch. Get out of the house. Mom? Mom? Billy, what? Do you hear what I hear? Do you hear what I hear? 
A song, a song, high above the tree, with a voice out. Yeah, the shot that always sticks with me is the shot of the gremlins uh, emerging from the water. Seeing that on the big screen, it hasn't lost its punch. I love Gremlins to death. I, I should note, Gremlins 2 is actually one that I did not like for a long time, but I kept going back to, just because it had something like I didn't understand. But now, it's I think of it as one of the most brilliant sequels ever. It's very aware of itself, and that's the point. Like It's, it's basically making fun of the, every point of the first movie. Okay, I don't, I'm talking about how I don't like deconstruction. Gremlins 2 is not an example of what I'm talking about. Gremlins 2 is subversive, it is bizarre, but yeah, it's, it's brilliant. It's a, okay, you want a sequel? Here. Here's a fucking sequel for you. Yeah, see if you want a Gremlins 3 now. <laughs> exactly, it's very much in that tone. Somehow Warner Brothers let uh, Dante and company get away with it, and... I don't know how they pulled it off. I don't know. And you can tell that Warner Brothers was very much on board with this. Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck appear at the beginning. They do. They do. It's weird because there are two versions of the movie, like, just with one subtle change. I think when it runs on TV, it runs the, like, I'm talking about the interruption. Yes. The film breaks, and then there's, like, a sh like they do shadow puppets, and it's the thing with changing reels. In the video version, they adapted it to where... Like, there's a video-type interruption, like, they're static, and they do shop up, it's in a static, which to me is just not as, uh, it doesn't make as much sense. But, yeah, I'm not sure how the DVD or Blu-ray versions handle it, but... You're leaving out that there's actually a third version, believe it or not, there in is. an unlikely form. Really? There's a not in the novelization, they throw that in. Really? The novelization's writer being kidnapped, so yeah. <laughs> Genius. Yeah. Um, it should be noted, Gremlins is also one of the best examples of studio meddling going right, which is, I believe it was Spielberg who stepped in. Initially, Gizmo was going to be turned into one of the e evil Gremlins. Initially, it was going to be him that became Strike. That cannot happen, no. No, it was decided that, no, Gizmo should be the hero. Right. And I'm glad, because you love Gizmo. Gizmo's awesome. If they made Gremlins 3 now, they would turn him into a Gremlin. And I wouldn't want that. I don't want that, no. I don't know. It's probably hard to find now, but when they made Furbies, well, they do now. They make, like, a new, creepier version of Furbies. But back when they first introduced Furbies, they made a Gizmo Furby. Yeah, that was kind of partially to settle a lawsuit. Really? Yeah, because it was pointed out that, gee, don't the Furbies look kind of familiar? <laughs> so they, they did a Gizmo Furby. To settle a lawsuit. Interesting. Yeah, just to settle it. Uh, so yeah, that's funny. Gremlins. Yeah, I I, I love Gremlins. I I, I love uh, some. Oh yeah, if you haven't seen it, see it. I feel like I'm going to jinx myself here, but I'm in the early phases of working on a, a script right now, and Gremlins is totally the touchstone that I'm looking at. It's like what I want to do. You know, very Joe Dante, sort of B movie ish. Yeah. Yes. On the terms of Dante, I have to note. 
uh, how much I love The Burbs as well. Not a horror movie. Well, not really a horror movie. Has some horrorish tinges to it, but man, that's that's an awesome film. If you haven't seen it, I do recommend it. I I think like we should probably be moving on from that, but uh, I think I first saw it when I was a kid. Dad, my dad introduced it to me. I think it's awesome that actually they have a dad who would introduce me to Gremlins as uh, yeah a kid. <laughs> we do need to move on because there was one other film that I wanted us to focus on in some real depth. And uh, that one is Mama. I wanted to bring this one up is because, okay, the two films that we've gone in real depth on are films that time has really cemented as classics. I, I think The Sixth Sense is only going to continue on as a genre of classic. The Exorcist is enshrined as what it is. This is one that it's really early on, but this is one that Amanda wanted to go see, and I went with her, and I really love this film, and I want to call some attention to it. So, I, you know, I guess if I'm doing anything, we're using this cast on horror to highlight films we have strong reactions to. This is one that really affected me on a very deep level. I, I thought it was excellent. You can see Guillermo del Toro's influence on it. At the same time, he really lets the directors do what they do. Yeah, yeah, what we're talking about del Toro, should be noted, he's not, he's not as presenting it. This is not like when Quentin Tarantino endorses something. Oh, no. No. No, Del Toro really and truly was a major force behind the scenes. He's given an executive producer credit. That was probably a little too light. Yeah. His work on it really was from the top to the bottom. Down, right down to the advertising has his touch on it. Yeah, he really championed it. Um, just through and through every stage. Uh, Andres Machete is the director's name. He deserves all the credit in the world for this film. Oh, he does. And uh, his, the person that he made it with, is that his wife? Sister. Sister! Okay. Yes, which is fitting because this is a film about family. Yeah, it really is. He directed it. Uh, they also did the, of course, the original short that it comes from, which caught Guillermo del Toro's attention. Uh, I did go back. I did go back after the movie and watch the short, and that actually is present in a scene in the movie, and they worked it in well. Like, one one scene from that movie is pretty much the entire short. That makes sense. That's what you do with a short film when you adapt it to full length. Yeah, this, the film is very well shot, very well acted. Like, the two kids were wonderful. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up, because they really are the film's strongest point. Uh, mm-hmm. The thing about it is, I see the film as being very much a European fairy tale, in a sense. Yeah. Uh, it's it's very drawn from the European fairy tale tradition. So yeah, it makes sense that the two girls would be the cornerstone of the film. And children in horror are a common thing. They're usually a cheap thing. Uh, there was a really crummy horror film that I saw last year, The, uh, the Possession, that also had a child protagonist. And I can honestly remember about as much about it as I can in the trailers. It's worthless. Yeah, and that's another one of those things. Um, 
The Exorcist is an original. It's really weird when you go back and watch an original because you can see the potency of it. And by original, I mean uh, there have been so many movies that have springboarded off of that. Even to this day, people are making movies like with with the word exorcist or exorcism in the title or have to do with possessions and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Well, with Mama, you have... This is a film that doesn't feel like something that we've seen a lot of lately. No, not at all. It is, of course, in a genre that there's a lot of. It's a ghost story. But it's a pretty unique one. It's a very weird film. The director's Italian, and I think I think he's Italian. I might be wrong about that. But the, the point is, he is of European descent, and it feels like in that weird way that European films feel. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, th- I think I do. I think the film itself is American. It has, like, all American actors. It is. And what nationality is Guillermo? Guillermo he's Spanish, isn't he? Mexican. Mexican, Mexican. Okay. Yeah, so it's funny because it's, you know, American film produced by a Mexican with an Italian director. I want to say the uh, children are uh, Canadian. I'm reasonably certain the film was shot in Canada, actually. Oh, cool. It gives it a lot of flavor. Yeah. Uh, this is a film that has a very unique, weird vibe about it. For one thing, Mama herself is this amazing creation. That's one of those things that, you know, you look at the CG on it, and from the first moment, you know, they, they definitely did this on a little bit of a budget, and, uh, like, this... You know, uh, thought process and uh, I gotta jump. I'm sorry, I gotta jump in. What CG? <laughs> what CG exactly? But um, there is. But it's like you almost get a sense that they keep it kind of vague and they don't show it because they didn't have the budget to show much of her, and that is f- so far from the truth. I mean, not that I, I don't know what the budget was on this, but uh, it was a low budget film. It was yeah, yeah, very. I'm shocked. They made at that. the money back. Oh yeah. Good. But when I say, but I, just, I have to jump in. When you say CG, I have to point out you do know that that was that most of the effects on Mama were practical, right? Really? Uh huh. That was a oh. contortionist they hired. Really? Yes. Oh my uh, God. Javier Botet, I think was the guy's name. I'm sure I mispronounced the last name. Was a contortionist uh, with Marfan syndrome. I've seen tests of it. You know, he has those long limbs. <laughs> Most of his stuff is was actually done in camera. I'm amazed. Yeah, I, I know. Yeah, this is a film that a lot of people think was CG. It's not. There's not a lot of CG. There is at the end, in some obvious places, of course. And it's one of the other things. You know, you, you think they're being kind of minimalist with how much they don't show of a monster. Well, no, they were just saving it for the end, and... Uh, you you see more of her, and uh, when you do, is it's amazing and it's really creepy and really well done. Well, again, I I think the fact that it was practical has a lot to do with that. Yeah, uh, you can go online and watch the effects test. It's amazing. Well, I'm gonna have to I'm going to have to find it and post the link. Yeah, but one of the things that that I really loved about the film was like, okay, there's there's some point of view sequences in the film that are completely shot in a different style from the rest of the film. I mean, there's just some amazing moments in the film where it shifts gears. There's a lot of different styles of film that are done. And then there are some shot choices in this film that 
really mark the director as someone to watch. Okay, for those who are unaware, the premise of the film is that it's... The protagonist is a woman who... Her boyfriend's twin brother has uh, died under circumstances that you need to see the film to understand, okay? Yeah, we're I not, really want we're to not gonna to... spoil this too much. Because it's fairly no. recent, we want you to see it. And the, 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 the way that the twin brother dies is very early on, it's shocking, it's disturbing, but it needs to be experienced, and there are some shot choices in that sequence that are breathtaking. Mm-hmm. And I should note, I saw this on a giant screen. I, I saw this on the giant screen. Lucky. Believe me, it, it looks that way. But anyway, so the protagonist is the girlfriend of the brother, and she does not want kids, she does not like kids, and she comes to have to play a maternal role. And so there's a scene where she's doing laundry, and in the other half of the frame... Oh, I don't want to spoil... Again, I don't want to spoil... I don't spoil. want to spoil it either. It's a great reveal. You know, it's one of those where it's it's almost like having split-screen... It's like practical split-screen, and I love that. It is one of the best shot choices I've seen in any film this year. Yeah, it's all... The scene and, is all one shot, and it's... Ooh, like, it, by the end of it, you're like, Oh, oh, shit. And, the, and because it's done head-on, there's no jump... There's no music on the soundtrack... No. To say, ooh, no. It's terrifying because of how it's shot. I hope that listeners are noticing the trend here. When you don't do the idiot bullshit, the movies are better. Yeah. And, and that's how it is here. This movie, it plays fair with its shot choices. It doesn't overuse the jump scares. There are jump scares in the film that don't be ridiculous. Right. But they're good jump scares. They're more payoffs than than anything. Exactly. Good, good, good choice there of payoff. Um, I want to know, talk about the acting because this was a film that brought to mind from some the idea of the Norbit curse. The idea that uh, when an actor is starring in a film, at the same time they're up for an Oscar, that it hurts their chances. Because the lead actress in this, uh, Jessica Chastain, was. Up for um, Zero Dark Thirty. Yeah, for Best Actress for Zero Dark Thirty. And there were some people saying that, well, this movie might have hurt her chances at the Oscars. Now, she didn't win. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence did for the Silver Linings Playbook, which I've seen. Having seen that, let me make three observations. Number one, Lawrence was going to win no matter what. The Academy loves her. They were going to give it to her. Lawrence was great in that film. She deserved it. Number two, Chastain didn't deserve it for Zero Dark Thirty because she's kind of the weak link of that film. Sorry to say. She's just not convincing in the toughness that that part deserves. But how that relates to this film is also, she might be the weak link in that film, but she's actually much better here than I thought she was in Zero Dark Thirty. Yeah. Yeah, I thought she was much more believable here. I actually didn't recognize her at first. I actually saw that this film within about a week of seeing Zero Dark Thirty. Yeah, she's not particularly recognizable. Just the change in hairstyle completely makes her unrecognizable. It's funny because it's a complete shift in character because in one, she is a consummate government professional. In the other, she is a punk rocker. She pulls off this part well, and her character has to undergo a dramatic shift through the film. She works. She's really good here. Uh... Also, got to talk about the actor that plays the twin brothers, uh, Nikolai Kostor-Waldo uh, from uh, Game of Thrones. Haha. <laughs> he plays both of them? Yeah. Oh, interesting. I did not catch that. 
It's a strange case of casting an actor as twins because, yeah, he does completely different hair and mannerisms for them, but that's him in both parts. I know Amanda actually was confused about that too, yeah. But yeah, it's the same actor. That's cool. He's good here, he's good here, but again, I feel like the film belongs to those girls. Yeah. Those are two actresses that they really sell the film. I don't want to talk too much about the ending, but I want to say that that ending broke my heart. Yeah, it really does. If you have rules that you think horror movies are going to play by, this movie does not play by the rules. I don't know, do you have anything else you want to say about the film? Um, see it. Yeah. Love it. It's on Red Box. I don't know, it's just very effective. I think the reason I wanted to bring this film up as well is because it has what I look for when I look for a good horror film, which is strong characters, strong writing, and strong acting. And as I look back at the films that, you know, I really love in this genre, I notice that that's kind of a constant, you know, that strong characters, strong acting, strong writing. Yeah. Strong direction. And I feel like there's a point there. The trifecta of good. Yeah. Having it all work, don't think that's an accident. So before we wrap up, is there any other horror projects that you'd like to talk about? Uh, Going back to my friend Ian, like, I have not seen Paranormal Activity. But I have. Yeah. That film was so well marketed. He actually went to, like, a 24-hour horror-thon where they just screened horror movies nonstop. And they actually did a surprise screening of Paranormal Activity. You know, and it's one of those things where everyone within, like, this was months before it was released. Yeah, it sat on the shelf for a couple of years. Yeah, everyone went in, you know, not knowing the hype, not knowing, you know, and he, he loved it. It was great. Like, that's the one film that he came away uh, and he uh, actually talked to me a lot about. It's like, there's this one movie, man, it really stands out. <laughs> And they they did a brilliant marketing campaign for that. Hearing a weird sound. Something's here. I feel it breathing on me. They did. They did. They did. They did a first-rate job on it. I hate how bad most of the found footage films that have come after it have been, with the notable exception of Chronicle, which is one of the few found footage movies to get it right. And I should note, Chronicle is not a horror movie. It's still probably about as scary as anything that we've discussed today. Mm-hmm. I still need to see it. Oh, you do? It's so... Um, oh, it's, just, it's great. It's probably the film that most fulfills the promise of the found footage genre that I've seen. Paranormal Activity is really good. I, I really like it. Briefly, I want to touch on some horror films that I've seen that I didn't like too much. I want to recommend that if anybody gets the chance to watch House at the End of the Street and riff on it, you take that opportunity. That's a bad movie. But it's kind of a fun one. Oh, man. That's one that I kind of inverse recommend. It's not a very good movie, and you'll just sit there picking it apart. But it's kind of fun to watch. I think one that I want to not recommend watching at all, Shrevenge, it's a horror short. I've seen it, and I'm seconding the anti-recommendation. It's kind of an example of uh, why I don't go for gore and horror. It's mean-spirited. Very mean-spirited. Like, it's the reason I won't see the Saw movies. It just seems so mean-spirited. That's something else that I notice as I'm looking at all the horror films that we've talked about that we like. There's not much gore there, is there? No. No, it's mostly suspense. Silence of the Lambs is definitely not a uh, bloodless film. But even The Exorcist isn't really that bloody. No, there's some, but it's not really, no. I mean, I just, I don't 
you know, I don't like sadistic violence. No, same. And Treevenge, here's the thing. I get what the director was trying to do. It's treesploitation. Ha ha. Yeah. As it stands, it's just kind of unsettling, unpleasant, and... Not very funny. It's not very funny. It's not. I should know. They are the same guys who made Hobo with a Shotgun, which actually, uh, I think they're Canadian. Uh, they made a trailer for Hobo with a Shotgun, which is actually pretty funny. I do recommend watching the trailer for Hobo with a Shotgun. And they actually made it on with the marquee of trailers when they screened Grindhouse up in Canada. I've heard that. I've heard that. And I've heard that the finished film is so-so. Treevenge doesn't really make me uh, want to see that very much. I hate to say, but I guess I... I don't know. I I just... I don't know. I'm not... I'm not much for slashers and not much for that kind of thing. You did mention Paranormal Activity, though. Yeah, that is one that I really like. I actually really like... I like the first and the third films, if that makes any sense. The second film is not so hot, but you still need to see it to understand the mythology. The third film, weirdly enough, even though the third film takes place first, you really won't understand what's going on and why all of this is so scary, unless you see the second film. So, yeah, so I think that's, that's, I mean, that's my take on the genre. Um, we would also be remiss if we didn't note a horror comedy. Yeah. Um, we obviously just touched on Shaun of the Dead. Let's talk about Cabin in the Woods real quick. Cabin in the Woods, that's right. I almost missed that. Yeah, that's one I saw blind in a theater, just going in, just, again, based on recommendation from my friend Ian. And, he, of course, having the name Joss Whedon attached to it also helps. This is a great movie to go in, just not knowing what the hell you're in for. It helps that you got Whedon, and uh, his co-writer on it is Drew Goddard. Drew Goddard, who, uh, who deserves all the credit that he can get. He directed it, and uh, he uh, wrote Cloverfield, so, you know, this is a guy with some real credentials behind him. Oh, yeah, which which sucks, because, you know, almost every project he's on, he seems to be overshadowed by another name. Yeah. Cloverfield was J.J. Abrams produced. I do like Cloverfield, but I do enjoy Kevin the Woods a bit more. I do, too, but, I mean, I think Cabin in the Woods is a lot of hallmark. Okay, again, we talked about postmodernism that's done right. I get the feeling that Whedon and Goddard really loved the films that they were sending up here. Oh, yeah, you can tell. This is right, we should split up. We can cover more ground that way. Yeah, good idea. Really? All we need to say is that it's on Netflix, put it on... And that's it. You will not regret. Like I said, I don't seek out horror. I especially don't seek out horror in the theater. I am so glad I caught this in theater. And I also saw it in theaters. Uh, again, Amanda watched having watched it. I don't know, though. I would have seen this one without her, is what it comes down to. Because of Whedon and Goddard doing it, I would have seen it just for them. And because what it is about, I, I heard that already before I saw it. And when I heard what it's really about... Then I had to see it, just because I thought that sounded brilliant. And it is. Oh, yeah. It is great. Let the film envelope you. It, it's it's fun to watch. It, let it envelop you. It's just so much fun. I, yeah, I, I, I love Cabin in the Woods. I think Cabin in the Woods is awesome. I, I realize this has been a more scattershot cast. That's okay. That's what we do. Podcast, people. Our goal here is to give you an overview. Let's, let's do the rest. That's a thing. If you came at us from iTunes, you can find our blog and the origin of our podcast at thefilmroom.podbean.com. 
can email us at filmroompodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at, at filmroomcast. Uh, our individual Twitters, I am uh, Primitive Man PRD. Austin is at Untitled User. Like us on Facebook. Check our Facebook page. You know, on our Facebook and Twitters, uh, we do so much more than just update the cast. We we spread movie news. Netflix recommendations. Oh yeah, lots of that. And uh, got a big one up right now. Oh god, yeah, yeah. You can you can find us directly there at Facebook.com/slash/TheFilmMovie. I think that's all of our things. Yep. Till then, I'm Austin Shen. I'm Alvin Weltfong. See you. Stay scared, everyone. This Christmas to a theater near you The most horrifying film to hit the screen There's a homicidal maniac Who finds a Cub Scout troop And he hacks up two or three in every scene Please don't reveal the secret ending to your friends Don't spoil the big surprise So is there any way that we could potentially be made complete raving hypocrites? Yes. Let's do that. Our next cast is Grindhouse. We are looking at the, uh, what I'm considering the three films that make up the Grindhouse project. Yeah, three. Obviously we're talking about the two that were released as one bill, Planet Terror and Death Proof. And we're looking at the film that spun out of them, Machete. Which... It totally fits, and uh, it is it is what the trailer sets out to promote. It is exactly the movie that we were promised, and I've got so much love for this set of films, and yeah, they're violent, but I think it's going to be a chance for us to discuss violence we like. So, that's next time.